Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 19. We're continuing to work our way uh, through the Pentateuch, and we're going we're to take a little time here and think through the law and, and some principles related to that, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Again, just want to encourage you, if you're new to our church, to join us for lunch after this service, about 10 minutes after this service, across the hall. Love to, love to get to know you better. Exodus 19, and we're going to, we're going to spend a few weeks uh, setting up some things about the law beginning this morning, and uh, this, this covenant that's made with uh, the people of Israel through Moses. And we're going to look just at the first six verses of Exodus 19 this morning. And so if you would please uh, stand with me, uh, if you're able to, in honor of God as we read his word together. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will keep, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask you this morning, just echoing what Mark has prayed, for you to open our hearts and minds and give us the ability to understand uh, these, these precious truths from your word. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Last Sunday night, we were on our way to a friend's house. And my son Austin asked me, he said, Dad, how, how are you feeling about next week's message? Now, this is, this is Sunday evening, you know. I'm like, well... He knows me well. I said, well, actually, I'm feeling a little bit nervous already. He knows, I kind of started getting nervous uh, for next week. Actually, I'm already this morning worried about next, nervous about next week's message. I kind of tend to to think ahead. And Austin's asking, well, how much work have you already done for, this is last week, for this morning's message? And he says, I said, well, you know, I have been spending, uh, I've been spending months thinking about getting to this section of Exodus and he said, well, how's it going? I said, well, I wish I had a couple more months. Uh, there's, there's just so much to cover. In fact, normally on a Wednesday night, normally on a Wednesday night, I kind of gauge where I'm supposed to be. I think, okay, normally I have about five to seven pages worth of notes and, a, and, a, and an outline by the end of Wednesday night and before I leave the, the office there. And this Wednesday night, I left the farmhouse and I had about 40 pages of notes and no outline and no clue as to where I came home and kind of cut out some things, got down to 29 pages, and then thought, oh, I know what this, and went back up to 34 pretty quickly. So um, if, if you're a little bit nervous right now, you should be, um, not sure. And even as I looked at my notes, I said, okay, I don't know if this is a sermon. 
Uh, it's, some, it's some information, but I, I don't know if it's a sermon yet. And I, even, you know, even at the end of first service, I'm not sure we got to a sermon. <laughs> but hopefully what we got to was the, the communication of some information that I think is going to be very helpful for us. This, is, this week and next week a little bit less and the week after that, we're laying some foundation and hopefully some things that will help you as you approach this section of Scripture that contains covenant and, and law. Hopefully there will be some things that, that we, we stick together today and in the next couple of weeks. And as you invest the time in trying to understand these things and thinking through these things, it can lead to a lifetime of understanding part of God's Word better. Because this is a, this is a controversial section of Scripture, and, and you know, even those who are critics of Christianity are perplexed, and sometimes they're angry about how Christians deal with the Old Testament, and specifically these parts of the Old Testament law. I was reading a website that was uh, kind of organized by some, some atheists. And one of the writers, I think the website's something like The Atheist Revolution or something like that, and one of the writers who would profess to be an atheist writes this. He says, have you ever discussed the Bible with... I'm sorry, have you ever discussed the Bible in which many Christians claim to believe with a Christian? Okay, so... Have you ever discussed the Bible in which many Christians claim to believe with a Christian? If so, the odds are good that you may have asked the Christian about some of what you found in the Old Testament. And when you did this, you're almost certainly told that whatever part you asked about was no longer valid. Somehow, again, this is the atheist writing, somehow the good parts are still perfectly valid, but the bad or embarrassing ones are not. Interesting how that seems to work, isn't it? He writes. Jesus, the Christian might insist, did away with the various bad parts you point out. Of course, the Christian will not be able to show you anything in the Bible that makes it clear that was the case. The Christian just knows it somehow, and you are expected to believe it too. He says if a Christian tells you that they're not underneath the Old Testament and it's not authoritative anymore, he says tell them them that the Ten Commandments are found in the Old Testament and remind them that the basis for their bigotry is found there as well. Okay, now there's, there's a lot, obviously, you would want to address with that person if God gave you the chance to, to lovingly uh, talk with them. But is that charge true? Kind of that basic charge that we have kind of arbitrarily decided, you know what, um, we're going to hold this part of the Bible and dismiss that part. We're going to listen to this part and hold it as authoritative and, and not hold this part as authoritative. And have we just kind of arbitrarily decided what we're going to do with Scripture? Have we, in fact, one person said that Christians made a New Testament because they couldn't reconcile what they knew was right with the Old Testament. Is that true? I mean, did we, are we going to someday make a new New Testament? Can we make a newer, a newest Testament? Is that how this thing works? How do we, how do we handle that? It's not just critics of Christianity who struggle with the Old Testament, though, right? And specifically, what we're calling the law, this, this mosaic law that God gives to the people of Israel through Moses. I think about my own life and people I've talked with, how they've handled the Old Testament. There are, there are several problems that I think we have when we think about the law. One problem is sometimes it just seems so irrelevant, right? You come to Leviticus 18 and it's talking about leprosy. And you think, okay, um, not a struggle for me. 
And then it talks about leprosy of the, the skin and leprosy in your beard and leprosy in your garments and leprosy in your house and how you bring the priest. And you're like, Dude, I, I'm not struggling with leprosy anywhere. This, I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to, to do with this. This is not a great devotional reading. I, I can't put this on a nice little Pinterest post, you know, uh, leprosy in the beard. It just doesn't, doesn't ring true. It seems irrelevant. And that's quite frankly one of the things I've been thinking. How do I make this seem relevant as we go through some of these things? As a church, it seems irrelevant. And sometimes, not only does it not seem relevant, it seems incomprehensible. You come to some of the passages that we'll be coming to in, in Exodus, and it describes the tabernacle, and it says, okay, um, you know, make the tabernacle with tin curtains, and it's made out of fine twine linen, and there's a cherubim worked in there, and the length of the cur- curtains is 28 cubits. And you're like, I'm not sure what one cubit is, much less what 28 of them look like. And I don't know what these loops look like. And, you know, I just, it's hard to picture. How does all this go together? And then, so before I even understand whether or not it's relevant, I don't understand what it's saying. And then I come to the New Testament. I come to the New Testament and it seems like the New Testament says some really different things about the Old Testament and about the law. Douglas Moo writes this. He says, The New Testament contains statements that appear to support opposite conclusions. He talks about Jesus, talked about the eternal validity of even the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. There's a warning that breaking even one of the least of these commandments will mean demotion in the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 5. We uphold the law, Paul writes in Romans 3. The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good, he writes in Romans 7. The man, James 1 says, who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And then, there's that, and then, and then sometimes you read in the New Testament about how we're not under the law. There's a complete cessation for the believer. Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10. You're not under the law, Romans 6. When there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law, Hebrews 7. What do we do with that? How do we handle that? It leads to, leads to some confusion, sometimes leads to some, some tension, not just from those outside the church, but even within, within the church, as different Christians have different understandings about how to approach the law. Jonathan Edwards writing hundreds of years ago, said there's perhaps no part of theology that, in which theologians differ so much as trying to state the precise agreement and differences between the dispensation of, of Moses and Christ. It's, it's a hard issue. But, but, this is an important part of God's Word, as all of God's Word is. And it's important for us to understand what these, these foundational laws are saying and, and how we are to relate them and how we're to, to apply them to our lives. There's so much that, that we need to understand to help us, not only in the coming weeks as we go through the Pentateuch, but to help us as we, as we approach God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament. We need to understand what these, what these laws are doing, what this covenant is doing, what these commandments and precepts and teachings mean. It's going to help us understand God's word. As we go through the law, another benefit is going to be that we're going to understand the gospel better. As we go through the law, I I believe the Mosaic law, one of the beautiful things that's going to take place is you're going to understand the gospel better. As you understand that that justification, being declared righteous by God, has, has never been about works. It's never been about legalistic requirements. It has always been about 
being justified by God's grace through faith. As we go through the law, as we go through this Mosaic law, I think it's going to help you love holiness, but not legalism. It's going to help you love holiness, but not legalism. And, and as you know, right now, uh, we live in a culture that, that doesn't love holiness. And we are part of a, a Christian community that's not always concerned with holiness. In fact, we live in a culture that, that not only is not concerned with holiness, but is a very antagonistic toward holiness. I saw in a news article uh, this, this past week about, and I'm sure many of you saw this as well, about that, that couple in, uh, in Texas who's part of that uh, um, reality TV show, um, Fixer Upper. I've never seen a whole episode of it, but I've uh, had the misfortune of going to the store that they have down there in Waco. And, um, you know, not, not anything against them. I just don't like shopping. Um, but, but there's, you know, those, those, uh, that couple belongs to a church in which they, they teach that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so now in the eyes and some of our, of our culture, they no longer have the right to even participate in, in civil discourse. That they've, they've excluded themselves from, from society or should be excused from, from being a part of society because they're part of a church that teaches that about marriage between a man and a woman. And my point is this. Um, you are part of a church that is concerned with holiness. And you are part of a culture that is antagonistic toward holiness. And what you see in the law is God saying, okay, I want you to be my, my kingdom of priests, and I want you to be concerned with holiness. And as you go into this this pagan culture, this, this culture the Canaanites are engaged in just horrendous things. I want you to look different, and I want you to reflect my holiness. And, and brothers and sisters, there is a potential that being a part of this community of faith is going to cost you. And as we go through the law, what I hope happens is that you gain an appreciation for holiness, and you say, no, whatever cost it it, it, it extracts from me to follow after the Lord and, and be passionate about his holiness, it, it's worth it. I'll pay it. I hope those things happen. I trust those things will happen as we go through this, this section of Scripture that, that deals with the law. We're, we're pointed to Christ, we're pointed to the gospel, we become passionate about holiness, we understand God's word. As we go through the laws, the question is going to be, how do we see the character of God and Jesus Christ revealed? How do we see the gospel revealed and apply it to our lives? It's a challenge. And I just, I graciously beg of you, hang with it, okay? Hang with it. Uh, tomorrow in the, at the, in the post-Sunday app, feel free to ask me any questions, and I'll, I'll talk about some of the resources I use, some of the books that I read. I don't have time to go through all of them, but know that if I say anything this morning and you think, wow, that sounds, that sounds really profound, that's very helpful, know that probably wasn't me. I'll try to cite sources, but um, don't, I may not always remember where I got something or be aware that it's coming from someplace else. Let's dive into some questions. We're going to ask several questions over the next few weeks, and this seemed to me like the most helpful way to be able to approach such a huge subject, just to ask some questions. Next week, we'll deal with, start dealing with some principles uh, as part of those questions. Here's the first question. Number one, where are we? 
and where are we going? Okay, I think that's a really helpful question to start things off. Let's think big picture. Uh, imagine uh, right here on this, the stage here, the pulpit is the cross. Okay, so this is Jesus Christ and his ministry. And you go backwards in time, you have the prophets, you have the, the monarchy, the establishment of the, the kingdom of Israel. Then you have back here, all the way over here, you have creation. Okay, And about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we talked about creation, and we talked about the, the fall, we talked about the uh, beginning of different nations and, and how humanity spread. We talked about humanity's rebellion against God. And then, in fact, turn your Bibles, if you don't mind, to Genesis chapter 12. Then we talked about God's special selection of a man named Abram. Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's this promise made to Abraham. Hey, I'm going to give you this this nation and this land. And as I'm going to bless you and through you, other nations are going to be blessed. You flip over a couple chapters to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, there's this establishment of a covenant with Abraham. Now remember, we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but remember, a, a covenant is not the same as a contract. A contract is kind of a cold, legal document. You and I sign a contract, I can say, hey, look, uh, you, you violated this part of the contract, and so, you know, pay up, buddy, or you can tell me, you know, you violated your contract, so I'm going to sue you, whatever. It's, it's, a covenant is different. A covenant describes a relationship between two people. It's this formalizing of the relationship. Hey, here's how we are going to be in relationship with one another. And Abram is wondering when God is going to keep his promises. And God brings him outside in chapter 15, verse 5 of Genesis, and and says, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, this is very important to think about where this takes place in terms of the story of God working with his people, he says in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. And then he makes this covenant with Abram. In other words, how is Abraham justified before God? Abraham is justified before God, back over here in Genesis 15, by faith. Now you go forward in time, and what happens? So there's this covenant, or this promise, this covenant. Genesis 17 kind of talks about this as well. Then you go forward in time. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They go to Egypt, and then we come to the book of Exodus, right? And the book of Exodus kind of has four main sections. There's this there's this kind of the beginnings. The whole book of Exodus is about the establishment of God's kingdom, this, this kingdom of priests that are going to proclaim God's blessings in, 
accordance with what God promised through Abraham. They're going to proclaim God's blessing to the nations. That's the goal. So there's kind of the formation of this kingdom, kind of the beginnings of this kingdom in Exodus is one, Exodus 1 through 14. Then you come to chapters 15 through 18, and they're in the wilderness traveling to Sinai. This isn't the 40-year wandering. It's just this movement from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Then the, the third section of, of Exodus deals, deals with this establishment of a covenant. It's in chapters 19 through 24, which is where we are right now. Chapter 19 talks about this, the, the purpose of this covenant. Chapter 20 is going to be the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Then you're going to come to chapters 21 through 23, and those chapters are going to talk about the, the judgments related to, the, to the, the covenant. And then chapter 24 is going to be the ratification of the covenant. Now, and, and then there's going to be the worship in the book of Exodus. That, okay, here's how you worship chapters 25 through 40. And then, and then Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is going to talk about some of the other rules and laws. Now, now here's what I want you to see. All these laws, these rules and regulations come after the promise made to Abraham. Abraham is justified by God in the Pentateuch before the law. He doesn't have the law. In other words, the law is not necessary for salvation. We'll we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. And then we come to Exodus 19, and we see that the purpose for this law that's given to the people of Israel. It says that they come here, and this is some 48 days after leaving Egypt. And it says that Moses goes up to the Lord, verse 3 of Exodus 19, the Lord calls him say, and says, this is what you need to tell the people. Verse 4, he reminds the people of his salvation. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And, and now, in verses 5 and 6, he tells them, okay, here's, here's how I saved you. Now, here's why I saved you. I, I saved you, and this is why I'm giving you this covenant. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, this is so beautiful, you shall be to me a kingdom of of priests, that is, people who are in special relationship to me and proclaim my excellencies to other people. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you see why that's important? Think through the order. Abraham justified by faith. God, God establishes. How do you get right relationship with God? By, by believing in his promise. It's a promise that points to the cross, to the Messiah. Then there's this establishment of a covenant with Moses. But before we start reading about all the laws and the rules and the regulations, we see the purpose. That The purpose is that you'll be my people. You'll be in relationship with me. We need to understand the context in which the laws occur. The laws are given to a, a group of people, the Israelites, to be priests in this land of Canaan. But all these rules and stipulations, and regula- they, they flow out of a desire by God to be in relationship. If you just read the rules in isolation, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, if you just read kind of some isolated rules in isolation, you might be tempted to think that the rules exist for the rules. The law exists for the law. That's not the case. This is about a God desiring 
for his people to be holy because he's holy, to be in relationship with him, to be a treasured possession. Context is so important. You know, um, our kids were talking recently about inside jokes, right? And if you hear someone else tell an inside joke, you don't get it because you're not in that relationship. You don't, you don't get the context. You don't, you don't have the context of relationship to, to laugh along with them. Our family, a couple years ago, Whitney had, had baked about six billion cupcakes, and we were all carrying these cupcakes in our lap in a van on the, on the way to this event, and, and uh, I made this sharp turn with the van, and someone in the van yelled out, hold on to your cupcakes, okay? Now, that expression, hold on to your cupcakes, has been just, we all started laughing, and that we use that expression to mean, hold on, something exciting is about to happen. Everybody, hold on to your cupcakes. And it, it's, we laugh, but if someone else hears us say it, they think, well, that's, that's a little odd, right? Um, if, if you've ever been around Pastor Kent and Janelle, they are the, the, the king and queen of the inside joke. They, you know, just kind of, Kent will say, um, hey, you remember? And Janelle will start laughing, you know. Yes, I remember you. It's beautiful. Why is it? There's a beautiful relationship there. There's, there's context. There's, there's joy there. Now, if you, if, you, if you don't see the context that exists here as, as you come to the law, you're going to, to miss the beauty of what God is, is, is talking about here. And I encourage you, just kind of as an aside here, I would encourage you to, to be a person who is a, a student of the, the context of Scripture. Maybe in the year 2017, even committing yourself, you know, this is going to be the year that I, I read through Scripture. And a great study Bible can help you understand that the context where an individual passage is occurring in the overall context of, of a text. Uh, ESV Study Bible, NIV Study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible, all great resources. So that's the first question. Where, where does this occur? This occurs in the book of Exodus. Exodus 19 is occurring in the book of Exodus after this covenant with Abraham. And the covenant of Abraham, the covenant here with Moses, is part of that covenant. The laws, all these things point ultimately to Christ and the gospel. Talk about how that's the case. Continue. Here's the second question. What does the word law mean? We see the word law, and, and we say, well, that, that seems like it could mean several different things, and indeed it does. In the Old Testament, the word is, is Torah, that we translate law. And uh, sometimes it's used very broadly to describe a command. So, for example, Proverbs 1.8, uh, the Writer says, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, her, her Torah. Uh, sometimes it refers to um, a specific regulation. So here's the, the Torah for the priests. For, here's the law for the priests. And it talks about a specific, here's what you do. But generally, when you encounter the word law in the Old Testament, it's talking about this, this law given to Moses at Sinai. But, but here's the, the really cool thing as you read the law, and, and I encourage you to notice this as you read through this, this section of Scripture. As you read through this section of Scripture, you see that God, as he describes his law, doesn't describe it as a static, cold thing, but there's often these verbs used in, in conjunction with the law that describe how we're to relate to it. So, for example, you keep the Torah. You walk in the Torah. You do the Torah. You obey the Torah. This is what you do to the law. You, you'll, it's, it's active. It's not some static thing. 
in terms of disobedience, you, you don't want to forget the Torah or transgress the Torah or abandon the Torah or forsake the law or reject the law or do violence to the law. In other words, when it comes to the law, it's not some static, cold thing, but we come to, to the, our relationship with God, and because God is holy and righteous, we, we walk and we do the things that he's commanded us to do in the context of what? Relationship. As I mentioned before, if we don't, if we don't understand the importance of, of holiness and righteousness, living in accordance with the righteousness we've received from God, we're not going to see rightly how God wants us to, to think and be and do and, and act. The New Testament, when we encounter the, the word law, kind of the same thing. Sometimes it's referring to all the Old Testament scripture. Sometimes it's referring to the, the Pentateuch as a, whole, as a whole, sometimes to principles or rules, but, but generally it's, it's, it's referring to what's commanded in the Mosaic law. God wants us to pursue a life that reflects his holiness. It's true for Abraham. It's true for the people of Israel. It's true for the New Testament believer as well. J.C. Ryle, as, as he's talking about the lack of holiness in our lives, says, look, we have to be holy. He gives several reasons. Again, he's writing in 1879. It could have been written today. He says, we must be holy because without holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness is written on everything in heaven. And he says, now, uh, suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What, what would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? Whose side would you sit down? How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? Now, perhaps, Ryle goes on to say, you love the company of the light and the careless, the worldly-minded and the covetous, the, the reveler and the pleasure-seeker, the ungodly. Maybe you love the company of the profane. They won't be in heaven, he says. Maybe you think the saints of God, other Christians, are too strict, they're too particular, they're too serious. You'd rather avoid them. You have no delight in their society. Or else says, bad news, that's only who will be in heaven. <laughs> you don't love Christians, you know, bad news, those are the only people there. Maybe you think praying and scripture reading and hymn singing are dull and melancholy. And he says, well, think about it. Think about it. The inhabitants of heaven never stop day or night proclaiming, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holiness is crucial. And we live in a culture that has rejected the importance of holiness. Now, we're not talking about legalism. We're talking about holiness, about a desire because of our love for God, to live out that, that love and pursuing righteousness and, and holiness by his enabling. And we'll talk about that as we go through the Old Testament. But sadly, sadly, many of us have forgotten how important holiness is to a holy God. Third question. Hang with me here. You're doing great. 
third question is this. What are some different approaches to understanding the relationship between the Christian and the New Covenant? Now, here's where, here's where this can get a, a little tough, okay? I'm going to show you a couple of charts, and, and hopefully, hopefully this will be helpful. And if not, um, you'll at least see some charts, okay? Um, someone, someone after first service said, hey, I just want you to know that I was the person that was really interested in this. And I'm like, okay, that, that was the one, okay? Okay. Um, Hopefully this is helpful. I, I think I think long term will be helpful. So hang with me. Here's 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 a chart. Now on on your left you see the word continuity, and on your right you see the word discontinuity. And and what we're talking about here is how people view their relationship to the Mosaic Law as Christians. Some people see a lot of continuity. They think, okay, this is what Moses commanded, and so um, it's, it's still applicable to the Christian today. God's, God's word is God's word, and so I, I need to be uh, obedient to it. And on the other end of the spectrum, on your right, are those who say, you know what? God's law for Moses was for Moses, and it has nothing to do with me. Now, you say, well, Daniel, that chart isn't very helpful. Let me give you some pictures for those of you who are more picture-oriented. Imagine uh, on the right, Charlton Heston and uh, the Ten Commandments. And, you know, so some people say, you know, God gave the Ten Commandments to Charlton uh, Moses, and uh, they're still in, in effect for today. You know, the, the Ten Commandments, the law, all that, I still need to be obedient to you. And on that top picture is a picture of a person who would identify as a Christian, and yet they're still trying to obey the dietary laws and, and all those types of the feasts, the observe all the things that God told Israel, saying, I, I have responsibility to do that as well. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you're right there. Uh, you have a, a person who might say, you know what? Um, I am a Christian, follow the law of Jesus, and so the law of Moses has nothing to do with me. You know, good stories, tells me about God's character, but it has nothing to do with me in terms of, of obligation or even effect. Okay. So big X through Charlton Heston, right? Does that help a little bit more? And there's some other words on there in terms of different theological systems and where people would identify. So on the, the far left there, you have the person who would be a, well, even further than that, you have those who are part of the Hebraic roots movement or the sacred name movement, and um, you see a lot of it on. There's, there's uh, I know, several prominent Facebook uh, pages, and it's more social media thing. It's not really an organized theological system. I know um, some in our church have, have talked with me about the Hebraic roots movement, and so this is going to be kind of a, and and even within that, even within that movement, there are some that I would say, man, that is. Uh, um, if not heresy, sure, certainly borderline heresy, and then some that say, man, these are just Christians who I think are really trying to be obedient to God and love him. And then uh, you have the theonomist. That's, that means God's law, a person who says, I, I think God's law is still in effect today. And then you kind of, on the other end of the spectrum, you have those who would say they want nothing to do with Judaism. Uh, then kind of a little bit off of that, you have dispensationalists who in turn, like historically, like the really far dispensationalists would say, look, there's going to be like Israel and the church separated forever. Okay, so you have all these different, all these different understandings. Okay, and incidentally, notice the very middle, you have this thing called progressive covenantalism. We're not really going to talk about that, but this chart came from a progressive covenantalist. So if you ever want to make yourself look good, create a chart, make some extremes, and put yourself right in the middle. Okay. 
and I'll talk about this more, but I would, I would actually see myself kind of in, in that general area as well. We'll talk about what that means as we go on in the, in the, in the coming weeks. What does it mean? What's our relationship with the law? Are we not part of it still? Are we still a part of it? How do we understand that? We're going to keep on talking through that. But here are, here are two, let me, let me take you to two Bible passages that offer cautions to both extremes. Cautions to both extremes. One passage in, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And for those who would say, you know what, I still need to follow the dietary laws, I still need to observe the, the feasts. I need. And by the way, we have people in our church who are all along this spectrum. We're not, um, hopefully we're not talking about a gospel issue. We shouldn't be talking about a gospel issue here. Paul addresses the, the various groups that exist in a church. For example, in Romans 14, talking about, hey, we have Christian liberty here, Colossians. We see that um, this, this should not be an issue that divides us as we let each person follow their conscience. But to, but to those who be on the, the far left there, I take them to a passage like 2 Corinthians 3. And in 2 Corinthians 3, we see that there's, there's a big difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Not that the Old Covenant was bad, just the new covenant is, is superior. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. What is Paul? He's a, he's a minister of a new covenant. He's part of the church. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, and he's talking there about the old covenant, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's saying, hey, this, this old covenant, it's, it's ended, but it was a glorious thing. It came with glory. He says, we're very bold. We're not like Moses. We put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened for this day. And it was hardened because even in the Old Covenant, they couldn't see the Messiah, right? The old, who's the Old Covenant pointing to? Messiah. They couldn't see it. To this day, Paul says, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where there is... The spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, freedom from the law. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's so much more we'll talk about in the coming weeks, but here's, here's kind of what I want you to see just for today. We're not under the law. There's, there's discontinuity. There's a new covenant, a, a new covenant by which uh, we live, and, and it's not that the old covenant was bad. It's not that the old covenant was anti anti the gospel. The, the old covenant was had glory, but remember, where it, it occurred in a certain context. It was for a certain people at a certain time. Now we're at a different time. Christ has come. He's fulfilled the law. So much more to say that there, but here, here's here's what we'd say on the other end. Here's what we'd say to the others who would, who would see no continuity between. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the, the Israelites and the, and the Christian, the church. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Who are we? We're, we're sons of Abraham by faith. I was 
Abraham brought in a relationship with God, justified through faith. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel is connected to that promise that God made to Abraham. And so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We, we've been adopted. So much more to go in there. Uh, so much more to go into there. But m- many people who don't see the, the benefit of, of the Old Testament would, would do well to remember that, that children's song, all right? Uh, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, okay? I don't know how the last part goes with that at all, but it, it is a lot of fun, right? That's the newcomer lunch. We'll be doing that. Just decided. Here, here's the beauty. We've been connected by God's grace through faith. We're in Christ. We're part of this new covenant. And yet, this new covenant didn't just spring out of the blue. It's, it's connected to these, these promises and these, these, these things. And in these things, as we study them, we see the character of God revealed, and we see his will revealed. We see the gospel revealed. We see Christ revealed. We see so much about holiness and the gospel in Christ. And it's going to be, I hope, a very, very beautiful and fruitful study for us by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for the fact that we can come here and, and think about who you are and, and respond in, in faith. And we do trust you. We trust you will help us to, to understand and think through these things uh, more and more clearly. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.